And uh, we're having people talking about it. We hear, uh, we hear all around uh, people talking about Thanksgiving and, and uh, even hear it on the radio, you know, that it's the time for giving thanks. And a lot of times the, they'll stop short of uh, who they're addressing their thanks to, you know, and so it's just being thankful uh, without really recognizing the end of our thanksgiving is to God, our thanksgiving to God. And so, so let's take uh, some of our services in the month of uh, November and just uh, let's just rehearse some of the things we're thankful to God for. So uh, as we uh, think of our approach to gathering together as a family and recognizing the holiday, a distinctly American holiday of Thanksgiving, and it goes back to the uh, days of our forefathers and the pilgrims as they uh, had that first Thanksgiving uh, uh, back in the 1600s on the other side of the country. And so uh, let's just uh, name off some things we are thankful to God for. And maybe they're recent, maybe they're long ago, but uh, let's just uh, quick name off a few things we're thankful to God for. Just uh, uh, just say it out there and uh, we'll just uh, we'll go around. So yeah, Brother Juan. Amen. For Joanna Noah, the newly uh, newly born uh, Joanna. How old is she now? Two weeks? Three? Uh, she's a month. Month now. All right. Amen. Time flies when you're having fun. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Joanna, a month old, and little Noah. Got a baby sister. Thankful for that. All right. Somebody thankful to God. Thankful to God. Brother Grissom? Amen. Still... Still a liberty that we have, you know, from folks that don't want us to have that and they're working against it. Uh, but uh, the Bible makes it clear that uh, there's, there's, uh, there's a kingdom war out there in the kingdom of uh, Satan and the kingdom of God and uh, always been at odds one with another. So there's the children of obedience and the children of disobedience. And so, yeah, there's a warfare, but we still have uh, the blessing of the freedoms that have been bought for us a long time ago. Somebody else got a, a thankful Dietzie? For, uh, say that again? Godly parents. Amen. How many of you were, had the blessing of being able to raise in a, uh, in a home where either mom or dad was a committed Christian? Let's see your hand. All right. And many of us. And so thank God for that. That's something to thank the Lord for. I see Nathan didn't raise his hand. Uh, we're working on that. So <laughs> no, he did. He did. <laughs> All right. Somebody else. What are you thankful to God for? All right. Uh, Brother Pete. Amen. Amen. Thank God for the family. And again, uh, in our culture, that's certainly under assault these days. But uh, we thank God that uh, he's taught us what a family is and helped us to maintain a family. It's, a, it's a, something we have to work at all the time, don't we? Yes. Amen. Somebody else? Thankful? Uh, Brother Nate? Amen. We've been able to employ another uh, one of the uh, members of our church. And so thank God for that. Pray for uh, Nate on some jobs he's got, some big ones out there and, and uh, some that are stretched out quite a bit. And, and so uh, he's uh, uh, just wanting your prayers to have uh, timely payment on some of these things that's coming up. So ask your prayers there as well. Mrs. Itherolte, what's you thankful for? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Lord, Amen. 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 
Yeah. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Brother Charlie was close to death and pneumonia and, and uh, down for the count, but the Lord uh, healed him up and raised him up, and so uh, going going strong again. So, continue to pray for the Charlies uh, as they uh, walk with the Lord. They're one of the most faithful families. I thank God for their good example here uh, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, week in, week out, and. Uh, I know, you know, a lot of folks that aren't as uh, stove in and, uh, uh, you know, just having physical difficulties that uh, we we make excuses. And I thank God for those that don't make excuses and, and uh, you know, come out and be an example to us. Thank God for that. Uh, all the way from Cuba. I have a lot to be thankful for. I was looking, listening to the news. Uh, this, uh, I don't even know his real name, Frito Cuomo over there. In the, he doesn't like being called Frito, but I can't remember what his real name is. But he's a leftist Democrat, and he was bragging about how uh, he, on a talk show, how he uh, had uh, this uh, shirt on that was such an honor for him to have because it was given to his dad by Fidel Castro, and he was so honored to be able to wear this shirt that Fidel Castro had given his father, um, um, Kumo, the the former uh, mayor of New York uh, back when. So he was he was bragging about that, how how cool that was that uh, he had that that. Uh, shirt given to him by a, a murderous communist dictator and so uh, that was really something to think about and if you want to know uh, who Fidel Castro really was and what he was really like talk to somebody that was there uh, under his uh, murderous regime and so uh, thank God for deliverance from that and, and the faithfulness of uh, the opportunity of being a free country somebody else got a th- what you're thankful for all right uh, Gene Amen. Amen. That's a that's a great uh, thing, isn't it? That uh, we are, we're in the last of those that are from that generation who fought in World War II, and uh, we just uh, we owe a certain certainly a great debt of gratitude to them. And the Filipino people uh, sure, sure understand that as well for the uh, for the uh, fact that the Philippines was made free by American blood. So thank God for that. All right, our our military, our veterans, somebody else, uh, thanking God. What are we thanking God for? All right, uh, Sister Kelly. Our church, um, we're not a rock band church. We're not a show. We're teaching the King James Version. Um, we have services Sunday morning, Sunday night, traveling as most many churches do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. We're family. We're family. Amen. And it is. We need each other more than ever, don't we? Uh, and I thank God for young and old, boys and girls, teenagers, old folks, middle-aged folks, uh, younger middle-aged like myself, um, and, and, and uh, people of all ages uh, gathered together having a commonality in Christ. So that's uh, thank God for. All right, somebody else. Had a, all right, Brother John. Amen. Amen. Yes, many of them do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an astonishing thing. But, uh, but uh, yeah, people have been just, uh, you know, lulled to sleep about the preservation of the Scriptures. And so thank God for the authorized version, which uh, we can hold in our hand and know that, you know, every word of God is pure and preserved. Thank God for that uh, preserved 
Word of God. So, good thing. Did you know that the NIV, uh, that's a real popular one. It's getting surpassed, I think, now by the New English Version or one of those English Revised Version or one of those. There's 200 English versions. There's more than 200 English versions. So, take your pick, you know, but uh, stick with the authorized version. But the NIV is 64,233 words shorter than the, um, than the King James Bible. So, don't you think some of those 64,233 words are probably important for us to have? Uh, I think so. So uh, thank God for the, for the preserved word. All right. Uh, Maricela? Praise the Lord for a servant's heart, isn't it, among many of our people. And I thank the Lord for that spirit, and that's the way it ought to remain. So that's a good thing. Some good things to be thankful for. We'll do that again next week as we get uh, right up against our, our uh, Thanksgiving time and have our praise and pie night and all those things coming up. So, so lots more to be thankful for. Let's get our Bibles and continue on. We're back after, I think it was September 11th, last time we met together about our, our uh, series that we're doing, God's Prevailing Work. We're talking about His church through the centuries, God's prevailing work. This is number 13 or 14 that we've been working on on these. But I want to um, have you turn to Acts 14 for a minute. Uh, Acts chapter 14 and uh, get your place there. We'll not go right into that, but Acts chapter uh, number 14 and um, get situated here. Um, well, last time we were together, we had reached, gone through the 6th century and had touched on the 7th century back on the 11th of September. And so, uh, recalling some of the things we touched on there, we saw the role of the Pope really come to its full, you know, power at that point with Pope Gregory. He was really the, um, he, he reigned up until the beginning years of the 7th century and he was a real prolific writer. He'd written over 850 books. He was a Catholic theologian, um, and uh, and he was um, very uh, influential in the Roman Catholic uh, um, institution. So he was the first to, now celibacy had been encouraged in the priests, but he was the first one to demand it, to make it part of church uh, dogma for all priests to, to um be celibate, and his objective was to quell some of the rampant um, licentiousness and adulterous behavior that was that was just rampant throughout the priesthood. He, his hope was to to uh, quell some of that. Of course, he went he did the opposite thing of what should have happened. You know, should have recognized the biblical uh, uh, importance of the family and and uh, those in leadership. Uh, being first able to lead their family before they're able to lead the church, but they, the uh, Roman Catholic uh, views of doctrine aren't taken from the scriptures. Uh, and so um, his idea was, well, we'll make them celibate and we'll force the celibacy, and so that'll solve the problem. Just made it worse, actually. He was the, the first pope to actually codify the doctrine of purgatory. Now, it was around, and there had been, you know, groups that had taught it in the to some degree, the Romanists did teach a kind of purgatory, uh, but uh, he was the first one to, you know, codify it into uh, Roman law, uh, to Roman Catholic doctrine, and so purgatory. The Bible has a purgatory in it, did you know? 
but the, uh, that purgatory is the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's therefore purged us from our sins. So uh, he's, he was the one that went through purgatory for us. He was purged. Our sins were purged by him, by his suffering on Calvary's cross. So there is no purgatory for Christians and, uh, or for people to go through before they can get into heaven. Uh, he exercised great persecutions against uh, that Anabaptist group that we were introduced to last time called the Donatists, you know, the followers uh, uh, there that uh, were separate from um, the establishment churches. The Donatists were the predominant Anabaptist group that we looked at last time. And so um, by the, by the mid-7th um, uh, century, though, there arose, it was in the east, um, another, it was in Armenia, Ar in the area of Armenia, which is now like in where Turkey is at, uh, that part of the world. Um, there arose another group of Anabaptists at that, uh, in that 7th century uh, that took the, they were called Paulicians. Paulicians because there's two thoughts on it. One that uh, one of their first uh, prominent leaders was a man named Paulus. But more likely uh, they were called Paulicians because of their, um, their focus on the writings of the Apostle Paul and the fact that they, all of their leaders, their pastors and their leaders that, uh, you know, were called to ministry tended to take names of one of the associates of Paul. Uh, they called themselves by, they just called themselves by different names of the associates, Silvanus and Timotheus and different ones. So they take those names because of their, um, the way they revered the writing of the apostle Paul. And uh, that group uh, was the Paulicians. They were very, um, they flourished, as a matter of fact, in Armenia and um, other parts of, uh, of uh, Syria and uh, in the Middle East and um, into France and so forth. They were persecuted very grievously uh, in, in um, later centuries. In fact, some in that century, but later centuries as well. They um, touched into Gaul, which is now called France, into southern France, and they met with another group who had the Bible the same as they did and had the same, had come to the same doctrinal positions as they uh, in southern France. And those were a group called the Albigenses, and they were flourishing as well, uh, just uh, separated from the establishment Romanist churches, which were very powerful and all over. You know, they were in Italy and France and England and, uh, and uh, into uh, Europe uh, by this time. And so um, they were, of course, always persecutors of these kinds of groups. And so you have those uh, there. The, the emphasis of the Albigenses was the same as the emphasis of the Donatists and the emphasis of the Paulicians. It was that the Scripture is the final authority and that we are subject to the Scriptures, subject to the Word of God, and that all men should have access to the Word of God. That was a, you know, that was a, a cardinal doctrine of the Anabaptists from the beginning, uh, that all, uh, all, everybody should have access to the Word of God and that believers, every believer should be able to obtain uh, the word or have access to it uh, even you know in this era before the printing press and where everything was manuscript uh, it was um, it was the position of Romanists that only the you know the the uh, hierarchy of the church should have a copy of the word of God and it should be kept from and held from the 
the common people because they would uh, not understand it and they would not interpret it right and they would make a mess of it and all those kinds of things were the thinking of the Romanists. So um, this was so contrary to the uh, positions of the Anabaptists that uh, they were, of course, grievously persecuted. Um, they were... were, uh, were uh, uh, had persecutions out of Rome launched against them as well as coming out of the Eastern Orthodox. The Greek Orthodox were just as vehement uh, against the Anabaptists as were the Roman Catholics. Uh, so they were getting it from both sides. And an interesting thing occurred. In the, in the uh, 6th century, you have uh, you know Islam uh, coming to be and in the 7th century, uh, rising to uh, power and becoming a force against the... Uh, Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, they were pushing up into um, what's now Turkey, up into Armenia, and they were pushing up into the um, Palestine and those areas. They were the Arabic, the Arabic uh, groups that were Muslim, that were Mohammedans, followers of Muhammad, were uh, against pushing against those, uh, those groups uh, there, those uh, Romanist groups and those Greek Orthodox groups uh, in that area. So we're entering in this era, this era, we actually started into it last time, which uh, we would call the, the medieval period. And that would be from about 600 to about 1500 A.D. Let me uh, go to the book of Acts for a minute, though, and read chapter 14, verse 8, uh, and on down following. Uh, Acts chapter 14, and uh, verse 8, and on down. And there was a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, perceiving him that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. And when the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, uh, then the, chief, uh, the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought in oxen and garlands and uh, would have done sacrifice, uh, uh, would have done uh, oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, uh, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And, when these say, and with these uh, sayings, he scarce restrained the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither uh, certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Albeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when he had preached 
the gospel in that city, to that city, and had taught many, they returned unto Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. When they had ordained them elders in every church, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord, on whom they had believed. And after they had passed through uh, uh, Pisidia, throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had uh, been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. When they were come, they gathered the church together and rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, and there they abode a long time with the disciples. So they made that uh, missionary journey, and he uh, recounted the events of that. But one of the things that was remarkable there in Lyconia, they were calling them gods, wanting to worship them. The next day they were stoning him. Uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, up and down there, I would say. But uh, what Paul, what Paul uh, said to them is, is revealing. He said, uh, you know, God let them do pretty much what they wanted. These nations says, let them do what they wanted. Let them have their own way. But he's never left himself without a witness. He's always had a witness. There's always been a testimony that there is a God and that people need to turn to that God. He's never left himself without a witness. That is really what we're looking at down through the different centuries as we go down through here. We're seeing that in all these ages, though they were persecuted and driven out of their countries and driven from their homes and sometimes mass persecutions taking place, as many as 100,000 uh, in a given short period of time, uh, at occasions, even with this, these kinds of grievous persecutions taking place, the gospel continued to spread and God continued to have a witness down through the uh, ages. So uh, in spite of all of the error, in spite of all of the false doctrine, in spite of all the false religions, in spite of all of the opposition, the Lord has, uh, has kept a remnant through the eras, through the ages, down to this uh, present time. And so that's what we're looking at as we go down through here. We see that Gregory had laid the, Pope Gregory had laid the foundation uh, for, the, for this, um, uh, this entity which was to come to be called the Holy Roman Empire. And so the idea was that it would be not a, not a government in so far as like uh, elected officials, but it would be that it would be a, an empire that was uh, uh, led by the Pope, who would be the king of the world. And so that was really established in, in the foundational sense by, by Gregory. By this time, he had taken complete control of Rome as, um, you know, in the, in the governmental sense of the word. And by this time, he had exercised his papal authority over all the established churches in Italy and Spain and Gaul and England. So his power was, it was great, it was remarkable. And the foundation was well laid there for the Holy Roman Empire since the literal Roman Empire had collapsed uh, upon itself uh, some centuries earlier. So he did this and then in his course of his uh, work, he set out to establish the Vatican as a city-state. And it is now a state. It is, a, it is an entity, a nation unto itself within Italy. And so it has borders and it has its own police force. And, uh, it has, uh, you know, its, its own uh, government uh, and its own affairs and so forth. And certainly it is a power in the world even today. But that began back with the work of Pope 
Gregory. So in those dark ages, there's this light of the Politians, uh, uh, who are the most prominent in this era that we're looking at right now. And uh, we didn't know a whole lot about them because they're just branded as heretics by both the Roman Catholic side of things and the Greek Orthodox side of things. They're both basically Catholic in their doctrine. Uh, so they're looking at these Baptists, these Anabaptists, as heretics, as, you know, possessed of the devil and all uh, anti-church and so forth like that. So that's what you're going to read about in secular history books. It'll always be, our group is going to always be looked at it as though they were heretics. And so when I was going to school, we were taught, you know, that the church, we were taught that the church was the Roman Catholic Church and that uh, everybody else outside of that were heretics and, and were burned at the stake and were uh, put in the Inquisition and they deserved it and all that. And so it was... Uh, it was uh, a lot of the writing of the Paulicians uh, was destroyed. I mean, everything they could destroy, they destroyed. Every record, every evidence, all the work and so forth uh, was. But So the only thing we really knew about them was whatever their enemies said about them. And often their enemies said a lot of things that we would say amen to and they would condemn them, condemn them about uh, things. So um, we knew that they were, we knew even from the writing of their enemies that these Paulicians were like us. They believed the things that we do. They were for individual soul liberty. They were people that said the, the individual has to answer to God. The family has to answer to God, first of all, that the, uh, you know, that it's not first through a man, through a priest, through a pope, through a church. It's to, uh, to God. It's accountability to God. It's the Freedom of conscience, you know, that we as uh, Bible believers have held dear as a doctrine down through the ages. So uh, we knew that. We knew those kinds of things from them. But in 1893, a, uh, a book was discovered in, a, in an ancient uh, Armenian library uh, of, that, was, uh, that was written by the, one of these uh, Paulicians back in the 1100s. And so... We then had, it was called the Key of Truth. It's still available today. It's translate, it was translated in 1898 in English, uh, the Key of Truth. And so we have it from the, from the source now, uh, some of the um, evidence that uh, what these Paulicians believed was what we believe. And so uh, the, we, we uh, uh, now have a, a lot better understanding of what, uh, what they were and who some of their early leaders uh, were. We learned from that that uh, a man named Constantine, and we talked about this a little bit last time. He he, not the not the Constantine of Rome, but another man. It was a relatively common name, like James or anything else. But Constant, a man named Constantine got saved, as you remember last time, stopping by the home of a of a uh, saved of a Christian, and um, and he got a hold of a Bible and read that and got saved. Changed his name later to Savannah. He became a a, a follower of the. Bible and, and uh, was one of the um, uh, one of the uh, prominent Paulicians. He was uh, he had 27 years in ministry. Was very fruitful. Had many churches planted out of his uh, uh, ministry there. But then he was killed by the order of the Greek Orthodox Emperor, also by the name of Constantine in 684. The, then came up Simeon. We mentioned him. He he was actually sent to kill this pastor Constantine. Uh, he was sent out by the uh, by the authorities there, the the uh, emperor, Constant, the emperor Constantine, sent um, this uh, Simeon to go and uh, take his forces and kill Constantine and scatter his uh, followers. 
And he got there and he saw the reality of their faith and was deeply convicted about it and, uh, and was converted. And so uh, he wouldn't kill Constantine. And so a man by the name of Justice, who was, uh, who was, um, a, um, who was faith faithful to the emperor Constantine, went ahead and killed uh, the pastor. And, um, and then uh, this Simeon later came to, to be the pastor, the, the next, uh, one of the next prominent leaders in the, uh, in the Paulician movement. So he lasted for uh, quite a while, but the uh, Catholic leaders eventually burned him and a number of his followers at the stake. And so uh, yet uh, they spread, they grew through the 7th, through the 8th centuries, they got back into Armenia, and they got back there through unusual circumstances, I'll mention a little bit later, but they got into Armenia. They got prominent there. Churches all over in Armenia that were Paulician, that were Anabaptists. And then in Mesopotamia and in Asia Minor, in Syria, into the deserts of Babylon and so forth. There were, uh, there were Anabaptists in all of those places. And remarkable uh, reasons for that that I'll mention in a little bit. Um, so though they were branded heretics by the Roman Catholic Church, the crimes that uh, they were supposedly guilty of were were things that, uh, you know, were, we believe. They, they rejected the papacy. They rejected the universal uh, church as the Roman Catholic Church. They insisted on individual soul liberty, as I mentioned, and they insisted that people have access to the Word of God. So these were in the mind of the Roman Catholic leadership and the Greek Orthodox leadership. These were crimes for which they were persecuted and um, maligned. Um, they... They claimed origins that went back to the apostolic era, like we do. They accepted the word of God by the, as, rule, as the only rule of faith and practice. They recognized only believers' baptism after a person was converted and only by immersion. That was, again, contrary to Romanism. They rejected the, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Does anybody know what the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is? You know what that means? <laughs> How many of you were Roman Catholics for a while? Let me see your hand. Yeah, about four or five of us. So what does the, what does the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of transubstantiation mean? Anybody remember from your, from your catechism days? Uh, you, don't, you, didn't, you weren't paying attention. You just didn't want to be there. You wanted to get out and go play. And you should have been paying attention. All right, <laughs> Brother Andrade? Right. Transubstantiation is that the Catholic dogma that the wafer and the wine become the literal body, the literal flesh and the literal blood of Jesus as you ingest it. So it turns from the wafer to the flesh of Christ as you chew it and swallow it. And so the flesh of Christ is in your stomach and the blood of Christ as you drink it down, you know, like a vampire is in your stomach. And so... Uh, course that you know that is uh, that is a ridiculous doctrine and it's taken from a complete misunderstanding of the scriptures and a misapplication of the truth it is certainly because the Romanist does not have as his uh, dominant view that he's subject to the word of God he doesn't have that he is subject to the dogma of the church you know and the papacy and the priest and so on and so on 
Um, so what they've done, they've taken uh, John chapter 6. Remember we preached John chapter 6, how that Jesus uh, talked about he is the bread of life and who, who eats, whosoever eateth me, you know, uh, uh, I'm in him and he's in me and so on like that in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus is obviously in the context of that not even mentioning the communion, the Last Supper and his institution of the communion. That's John chapter 6 we're talking about and he's talking about that and they're scratching their heads and saying, well, how in the world can we eat him? Is he, you know, how, what is this? And, and the disciples even had a hard time with it and he explained to them that it's believing on him and receiving him that he's talking about there. So it's all in the context of John 6. They take it over and they mix it in with the communion in, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, mix those together and mix it all up to And even in the, uh, in the observance of the communion, he says, as oft as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance. And uh, it is clear from the context in either place, in every place, that that is what it is. But um, the Romanist ha has, this, um, has this grip on the people because he's got this wafer god, and they do call it a wafer god. They hold a plate under there, so there's any pieces that come down. They don't touch the floor and so forth, and no animal can eat them or anything like that. And so they're very careful about the, the napkin underneath and so forth, because they believe these are literally God. And so they teach these are, these are uh, you know, this is Jesus Christ, and you're receiving Christ. You can't. You got to be careful when you're asking a Roman Catholic, "Have you received Christ?" And he'll say, "Well, yes, I've received Christ. I, I do it every every Mass. I receive Christ." You know. So uh, when you say, and then you say, "Oh, you must be okay then." No, he's talking about the Mass, and he's got that held over his head that he has to keep coming back and has to keep taking the Mass until he gets to death, and then he's got to have the last rites administered and the you know the um, uh, his his dying unction has to be administered there. And even with all that going for him, he's probably going to have to spend, you know, a long time in purgatory. Um, so he's got the, the priest that holds this over the head of the Roman Catholic uh, layman, saying, you've got to be here, you've got to come, you've got to do this week after week. And you never, you never can be, you never can just say, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm born again. Because you've got to keep getting saved. You've got to keep coming and taking and coming and taking and ingesting and taking until you get the last rites. And hopefully there's a priest around to do that for you or you're going to go to purgatory or you're going to go to hell. Um, so it is very, very, it's very controlling. It's a means of control of the people. Uh, the mass is the sacrifice of the mass, and so, so Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient in the mind of the Romanists. That it has to go. The sacrifice has to go on and on and on and on all through life with the administration of the mass. So uh, that, of course, is was was, uh, was very strongly opposed by the Baptists, the Anabaptists of that uh, uh, of the Paulicians and others, and um, they they didn't hold that view. So. The the Protestant Revolution, the, the Protestant Reformation came along, and here's the Lutherans, who come out of Romanism, and uh, others that come out of it. The Anglican Church come out of Romanism, but kept much of the dogma of Rome, and they didn't do the transubstantiation. They modernized it a little bit and compromised a little bit, and they did something called consubstantiation. So with their weekly Basically the same thing, a weekly offering of the wafer and the wine, and basically the same teaching that it's a sacrament that has efficacious saving power, that you need to do it week after week. Uh, but 
they didn't say it uh, literally becomes the flesh and the blood of Christ. They said, but the presence of Christ enters into it or enters under it or around it or with it. Con is with, chili con carne is uh, what, <laughs> beans with meat or something like that, isn't it? So with meat. So, uh, so they said consubstantiation, the, subst- the substantial presence of Christ is with the wafer and with and it's really not much of a difference. I mean, uh, it didn't say it literally became blood as you drank it and became flesh as you ate it. But it was close as they could get to that without saying that. Uh, and again, of course, that's a, um, that is a misinterpretation of the Scriptures. So, the, the, you know, the Anabaptists didn't let them get away with that one either. They didn't, uh, uh, they didn't make it any easier with the Protestants. So the Protestants, the Lutherans, and the Anglicans and the Protestant churches weren't any happier with the Anabaptists than, weren't much happier with the Anabaptists than the Catholics were because they weren't going along with those doctrines. So they, these Apollicans rejected ceremonialism and sacramentalism. They rejected penance and the associated, uh, you know, buying uh, your way out of purgatory. When we were in Canada, we went to this great, beautiful uh, cathedral there in Montreal uh, that is uh, one of the largest in the world, and I went in there, and I was uh, wandering around in there, and they had a they had a dead they had a dead guy in there, and he was all you know he was all there uh, in in his coffin and so forth, and they had his shape on there, and his body was still inside there, but you could go see it and smell it and everything, um, and uh, so they had that in one room, but but all along the way they had boxes on the walls, just brass boxes with lock top on them and a, a, a slot in the top. And they had signs on them both in French and English. And I uh, took pictures of a couple of them. I'll show them to you sometime. But on one of them, they, they said, uh, this, you can put your offering in here for us to do prayers for the dead. And another one over here said, you can put your offering in here for us to, to pray uh, to shorten the time in purgatory. They were, they were for those in purgatory. So you could put an offering in. And so these boxes would fill up week after week with people bringing their money to hope to br- get relatives bought out of purgatory sooner. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church is getting enriched and enriched and enriched that way uh, by those things. So they rejected all of that nonsense and, uh, and uh, were, as a result of that, very grievously persecuted. Uh, they were driven from their places in the 7th century. They were um, pushed into further into Syria, per- further into the deserts of uh, Babylonia and uh, those areas east of Syria in the eastern deserts there. Um, and at that same time, the Mohammedans were coming to power there. Mohammed, this is a remarkable thing, and I didn't know it till I was doing some more research on it. Mohammed came in contact with Christians. We know that. We know that, you know, much of, uh, if you've read the Quran, you know that a lot of it's just plagiarized from the Bible. It's just mixed up and messed up and put in in a different form and so forth. But lots of Genesis is in there and, and uh, Christ is appears in the Quran and so forth. So, Muhammad had exposure to Christians, and it co- turns out that Muhammad's exposure to Christians was these Anabaptists. You know, they were trying to they were trying to you know get him right, but uh, he just took the some of the externals from Christianity. Uh, he took it from the Anabaptists, who were prominent in that area of Syria and, and uh, east of there. So his exposure was there. Now he. He did travel right into Jerusalem and, and so forth in his uh, travels, and his wife 
that uh, really introduced him to uh, Judaism and to uh, Christianity. But he, his exposure to the Anabaptists was remarkable. And what we find is that they were, they were afforded, they were tolerated under the Mohammedans and they were afforded protections from the persecutions of the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. So, so one time in our Baptist history, our, you know, our Mohammedan brethren uh, kept us alive. So uh, go over and thank them, you know. So they uh, kept us alive. They didn't, at least didn't persecute. They, they didn't agree, uh, but they were tolerant of the Anabaptists, of the Paulicians that were, that were very, uh, you know, they, they flourished in Syria. They flourished in Armenia during that time, and they even came to a place where they um, were, for a, a period of time, not badly persecuted in, in Armenia, and they established a city-state there um, that uh, one of the cardinal laws of that city-state was the freedom of conscience. And so they, in, they allowed anyone who lived under their jurisdiction to have complete freedom as to what they wanted to believe or not believe, uh, they gave them no, there was no uh, coercion at, at all uh, in there. And so that was, that was occurring in the ninth century. The free state, the, the state, the city state was called Tepris, T-E-P-R-I-C-E, Tepris. And uh, remarkable thing, a freedom of religion was really first practiced in the, in the sense that we know it, in a governmental sense, it was first practiced there. Uh, something that our forefathers, you know, maybe picked up from our Anabaptist forebearers before that in our, in our, for our nation, uh, the freedom of conscience and the freedom of religion. And it was from there they sent out uh, missionaries. Um, the the um, Anabaptists were missions-minded like we are today. They, they sent missionaries out of their churches to uh, the Slavonic tribes, you know, the basically the nations that um, have Slavic origins, Bulgaria, they went into Bosnia, they went into Serbia, they went into the Balkans and established churches and, and had, um, had mission centers and all those places. And that went on for about 150 years. When they got over into Bulgaria, the Bulgarians and others around them called them Bogomils. So if you're reading, if you're reading, if you're reading Anabaptist history, you're going to come across a group called the Bogomils. It's a funny word. But it means friends of God. They called them friends of God, the Bogomils in uh, Bulgaria. In southern France, they came to be known as the Cathari. The Cathari just means the pure ones. They bumped into the Albigenses there too, and uh, who were on the same page as them uh, there in southern France, who were also persecuted. And we'll look at the Albigenses more detail next time. But the next group coming up is the Waldensians, and they. And they're, um, they're very, very um, remarkable, the Waldensians. We're, gonna, we're going to enjoy uh, getting acquainted with uh, the Waldensians in the days ahead. So we'll stop there, and uh, we'll um, pick it up next, uh, next time. I think this is this next Sunday, the, the, uh, next Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, isn't it? So we'll be doing a, a different, if, it's, if I've got it right, unless I've, have I got one Wednesday in between? There's one Wednesday, one more Wednesday in between Thanksgiving, okay, uh, to go yet. So we'll pick it up there and we'll look at the Waldensians uh, uh, next time and see, um, see our roots back through uh, the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries with uh, the Waldensians, the Albigenses, and the uh, remnants of the Paulicans who were, rem some of them made it all the way in the 19th century. So we'll talk about uh, that a little bit as well. So let's go ahead and and uh, have a time of prayer. I want to ask you to pray for two missionaries. We, I've overrun my 
my time here a little bit, uh, but I want to ask you to pray for Mike and Sandy Reap. We just took them on recently. Said we have a special prayer request. We have been praying for property next to the church for many years, and uh, now we have a possible opportunity of buying it. Uh, they've asked more at this point than the property is worth, but we're praying that, excuse me, we're praying that uh, we'll be able to uh, pick it up. The, uh, they had originally sold it to some other people, but um, it didn't work out for them, and now they're coming back and wanting to uh, talk to us about it. So they're hoping to be able to do that. It would really open up parking space for them. They're desperately in need of more parking space. Brother Pedro's been over here at Mike and Sandy Reap's church there in Philippines and reports that it's a great work going on there. And so um, we're excited about uh, having them as part of our church uh, missionary family. He said, uh, thank the Lord, too. He's added eight souls to Berean Baptist through the... Uh, through the waters of baptism since last month. And so we thank God for eight baptized that have been recently converted and has a picture of uh, some of those recent baptisms there. So um, pray for Mike and Sandy Reap, R-E-A-P. They're in the uh, Philippines, and so we want you to uh, remember them, if you would. And then also the Patricks in Nigeria. They're on their way to Nigeria. They're some of our own with um, Annalise uh, out of our own church uh, there with Patrick there and going to Nigeria says um, we're at 25% of our support now. They've just started out when they were with us. They were just getting started. So they're at 25% now. And he's, he says, uh, want to ask your prayers for wisdom as to decisions on um, concerning a camper trailer. Should we uh, buy a small camper trailer for the next year as our travels? And so he's asking for wisdom concerning that. Uh, either that or they're going to end up having to have a hotel expenses and just not sure how, how that's going to work. So he asked your prayers for wisdom there. And uh, also for safety and traveling through Oregon, Washington in December. This uh, December, they're going to be traveling up in the colder climbs. So ask your prayers for that. And he said our, our prayer for a Christmas present for the year would be to be done with deputation by Christmas of 2020. <laughs> so uh, asking your prayers for that. So that's the Patrick's. Uh, to Nigeria, and Garen and Annalise Patrick. And so if you'll pray for them as well. Pray for Brother um, Pruitt. He's going in the 19th for the last treatment on his cancer uh, treatments. And so um, his last series of them. So would you pray for Brother Pruitt that that would be successful as well. All right. So you'll remember some of those in prayer. Appreciate that. Anybody else have a uh, prayer request, uh, Nicole? <coughs> Excuse me. Did it again. <laughs> I should go this way. Physically able to get on your knees. If not, remain seated. That's fine. I'll just call on a couple to pray. I'll ask Ben if you'll.